2: Hi, I'm Heather. And I'm Brittany. We are the okayest moms, but we're also creatives, businesswomen, and best friends.
1: This podcast was created as a community for the modern mom.
2: We know you're doing your best despite the conflicting messages that you aren't doing it as well as someone else. We believe in self-care, mom
1: friends as our sanity, and that motherhood looks different for everyone. Most of all, we believe
2: that you are more than just mom.
1: So, join us as we talk about a range of topics from motherhood to frivolous reality TV and everything in between.
2: Welcome to the OKS Moms Podcast. Hi, everybody. Heather here. Welcome back to another episode of the OKS Moms Podcast. Hi, Brittany. Hey, Heather. Okay guys, we are gonna just jump right in today. We are so excited and honored to have Bryn Kennedy. She is the Democratic challenger to the Republican incumbent, Tom McClintock in California's fourth congressional district. We know she's a super busy woman and we are so thankful that she made time for us this morning. So let's get started.
1: Seriously, so excited! Um, (laughs) First of all, we just want to know, like, could you introduce yourself? How did you get into politics? We know you started in tech. How? What was it like to make that jump? Yeah.
0: Well, I, I I'd like to start with actually my upbringing. So I grew up in a rural part of our country in a small town in a working class family. But a lot of my family was in the military, and we talked a lot about politics around the dinner table. So. I had that kind of spirit of service, I think, in my blood and in my DNA growing up, and then studied history in college and kind of was always in, really interested in serving the country in the future. Uh, but I spent the last 15 years working in the private sector, uh, first in finance, and then I started a human resources software company that helped connect people to jobs and helped businesses sort of navigate a changing economy. A lot of the stuff we're going through right now. And uh, I led the business from an idea to operating um, all around the world over about nine years. And as it got bigger, I sort of started doing some policy work. I did some um, work as a group of CEOs around business policy and creating jobs in our country And uh, I started an initiative to contribute a percent of revenue to support refugees around the world. And I started writing a book about the future of the economy. And then, honestly, eventually I just got to the point where I was like, gosh, my heart is so much more in this side than in running the company day to day. Uh, and I was also really horrified by the people that I saw in Washington. I was like, Oh my gosh, everyone is fighting with each other. Everyone is so disconnected from, you know, working families, like the one I grew up in businesses, like the one I'm running, you know, people working day to day, like all of, you know, my colleagues and employees. And I thought, Oh my goodness, if I ever did my job like so many of these people in Washington do their job in Congress, I would absolutely be fired so darn quickly, and you know, so would everyone that I knew. So I thought, gosh, we have no wonder everyone's lost faith in Congress. No wonder everyone rolls their eyes when they think about it. We just got to change the people and kind of turn the page to a new generation of action and relevancy and dynamism, and so I decided to jump in.
1: I love that. I love that so much.
2: All right. So let's just address the giant pandemic in the room. <laughs> How do you rate our government's response to pandemic? And what would you do differently than our current representative? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, I think it depends what part of the government you're talking about. I think locally, you know, I live in Roseville, as I think both of you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think locally. Our government has done a really incredible job trying to, you know, step in and support local businesses, um, be present, really innovate, help people get outdoor seating if they're a restaurant, et cetera, you know, really try to support the community. I've seen that actually locally up and down our district across the 10 counties and the different towns and cities in them. So that's been super inspiring. Um, And I always tell our local Uh, government leaders, you know, you guys need a big pat on the back and applause. Um, That being said, I think the federal government response has not been good. I mean, we have 4% of the world's population and 25% of the world's coronavirus cases. Uh, We have higher unemployment than many other places in the world. Uh, We have schools closed, stores closed, people you know, really affected because we didn't get our arms around this virus early enough. And we have leaders like my opponent who, instead of trying to bring us together and be a leader, weaponized this pandemic to divide us against each other. He encouraged people not to follow basic public health guidelines. He voted against funding for testing. So that we could track the virus and know where it was going. He had the gall to tell our community that he was voting against support for paid, you know, sick leave for people because they were going to game the system. I mean, this is so detached and frankly just so unhelpful because if you don't follow public health guidelines, if you don't innovate, if you don't come together as a community, the alternative is just shutting everything. No one wants You know, every business to be shut, all of our main streets to be hollowed out, kids to be home the whole year. You know, what everyone wants, everyone I talk to of all political persuasions is adults in the room that stop fighting with each other, come up with a plan to move our economy forward, move our schools forward so that we can get through this until we do have a vaccine and we can be done with it for the most part. So, you know, that's how I would have approached it differently. It's, you know, really heartbreaking, actually, to have seen his leadership uh, on
2: behalf of our community. I agree. There is this real disconnect between we all agree we want to get things back open and get back out there, but then there's no help to do that. And so it's just it's mind boggling. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I mean, I think it just it really highlights two things which were sort of Um, you know, swimming around my mind and why I decided to run. One is just the utter, utter, utter dysfunction in Washington. I mean, we knew this was going to happen in June, the schools challenge. I mean, this is not a surprise that we get to the middle of August or early August and, you know, we still have a virus. And so my thing is, like, why didn't was no one planning what to do? Like, why were the school boards and the state representative and the federal representative not sitting down and saying, we don't care what political party you are. We don't care, you know, what your personal opinion is. We have a responsibility to come up with a plan that allows us to help our kids continue to learn and develop socially, help our businesses move forward. So that, I think, is just so obvious that the gridlock is affecting all of us day to day and the division, and my opponent just sows that. I think the other thing that highlights is just how disconnected he and so many career politicians are. I mean, this is not unique to being a Republican or a Democrat. This is you know, many, many people in both parties. But for some reason, our government is filled with people that have never worked a day in other parts of the world. You know, my opponent has been in government for 40 years. That is longer than I've been alive. Uh, During that time, the internet was created, email was created, uh, you know, many, many things that changed our society. And you know, he's never run a business. He's never been. He doesn't live in our community. So, you know, you can't really expect that someone like that would understand what you or I or the coffee shop I go to on Vernon Street or you know the store in uh, Sonora are going through day to day if you just don't show up and you've never done it. Totally.
2: I've um actually sent him a couple emails because <laughs> that's who I am now in this year. <laughs> I know um, we
0: all have developed all these new things out of frustration, right?
2: I'm calling people, I never call people. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean his um auto responses are just so out of touch and it's just you know conservative sound bites that he's repeating that you know the current administration have put out there. And it's like, are you I get they get so many emails and all this, but that has nothing to do with what I told what I was writing to you about. <laughs> so it's, you just, know, it's
0: just like there's a humanity that's so missing. It, um, that's it. That's it. I exactly. The first one to say, you know, we're not going to agree on everything. Um, and I think that that's healthy. You know, most of us don't even agree with our families around the dinner table on everything. It'd be pretty boring if we did. And, you know, I know from running a business that you are actually stronger in how you develop solutions if you have people really challenging each other and playing doubles advocate and all that stuff. So, you know, I very much respect some having different opinions. But the thing is that he's really uninterested in talking to anyone with a different opinion. And there is just this utter humanity that is missing. I mean, I sort of always joke, like, no one cares what Alexis de Tocqueville said in 1790. Like, honestly, real people have to work, they have to put food on the table, they have to raise their kids, take them to sports practice, invest for their retirement or to pay for college, try to figure out how to plan a a family holiday, you know, each year on uh, with as cost of living goes up and salaries don't. And like, no one cares what a political philosopher said in the 1700s. It's just so radically detached from what our government is supposed to be for real people in the real world. You know, that's the point of democracy is it's government for us. And so if you're just going to sit in there in an armchair with your feet up, quoting philosophers from the 1700s, like maybe that worked 30 years ago, but today we need action. We need solutions. We need presence. We need human communication, authenticity, connection, help for people. And, you know, in some ways I think that that's what some people have seen in, you know, some of the newer folks in the administration. And it's just, my opponent is the absolute opposite of any kind of change or outsider or humanity. I mean, he is a creature from be- the swamp below the swamp who has run for op- office 21 times, received more than $4 million of taxpayer funded salaries, actually run for every job in California just to see what sticks and has never lived a day in our district. In fact, never lived in the district he represented in the state legislature as well. So this is just like, how do I, you know, use the system to my personal advantage as much as possible? And, you know, you trying to have your, you know, deal with your kids at home and work and do this podcast and everything are the ones who
2: suffer. Yeah, completely. Well, and the irony of he's making legislation out of concern that people are going to cheat the system.
0: (laughs) I know it's so so, people very nicely say it's a hypocrisy. I just say like it's a good old fashioned lie. I mean, we can all try to, you know, sugarcoat it. But the reality is if you have never worked a day in the private sector and earned, you know, a paycheck from that, and you work 40 years in government, and the entire time you've said that government is terrible and we need to get rid of government, and government is the problem, like, it's a really freaking weird job to pick. <laughs> You're just going to criticize your employer the whole time. I mean, I don't think government's the solution. I don't think it's the problem. I think we need a smart government that responds to problems and helps people's lives and lays the foundation for people to you know, take the individual responsibility to work hard and do well and invest in their family's future. (laughs) But, you know, it's like, you work, I don't know, working at a company or something for 30 years and every day showing up be like, I really hate this company. I really hate my boss. Like, who wants to hear that? You're like, get a new job.
2: Right. (laughs) Logic is hard. Um, So one thing that's really been highlighted over the last six months or so of this pandemic is that we need access to good quality healthcare. And we've really seen Mm -hmm. certain groups of people be affected by their lack of access to healthcare. So what do you think we can do to make healthcare more affordable?
0: Yeah, that is a question I will tell you that I hear um, almost every day on the campaign trail. And, you know, I talk to hundreds of people, uh, hundreds and hundreds every week. So I know it's high on everyone's mind. You know, my personal experience with this is as I was growing up, uh, both of my parents had cancer, actually, and my um, yeah, they had gotten divorced. My dad was a teacher, so he had good benefits from his, uh, his contract as a teacher, and so we didn't have to worry about his care, just his illness. But my mom um, is a small store owner on a main street, and she, you know, for my whole life, she worked uh, many, many hours. Sometimes she would go to her store overnight and do inventory and stuff. And when she got sick after they got divorced, I sort of learned as a young adult um, that she didn't have health care because she was relying on my dad and just couldn't afford it like a small business owner. So we navigated that together, which uh, was not easy. And I share my personal story because so many people across our district have similar derivatives of that story that they've shared with me, opened up their hearts, whether it's the small business owner that can't afford health care like my mother, or it's the senior that comes up to me at the end of an event with tears in her eyes saying, you know, I don't have kids or a husband and I need someone fighting for my Medicare. Or it's the young family with three kids where premiums have just gone up so much that it's untenable, even with two working parents. So I, I share those stories because I just want the listeners to know how important this is for me. Um, What I support is, um, first of all, uh, defending what we have. I know that that's not a sexy thing to say, but, you know, we have uh, my opponent who has been trying to overturn the ACA and the protections for pre-existing conditions and got Medicare for many years uh, with no plan, he points fingers and uh, sort of stands outside the boxing ring, but doesn't actually get in with a plan to try to solve it. So I will defend those things that I know many people rely on today. And then I support expanding the choice in the Affordable Care Act by adding a Medicare buy-in option to the exchanges that anyone can buy into. You know, This should be a very affordable thing to do, much cheaper than buying into a private sector plan to provide a base level of coverage. It should, uh, it will not increase taxes by a dollar because, you know, you're buying in to cover the costs of the Medicare provision if you elect to. And with that, it will put pressure on the private sector to bring down costs through markets and competition. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something that I'm really, really passionate about and will be working hard on in Congress. And then secondly you know, we have an issue with both the cost of delivering service and the cost of prescription drug prices. So I support Medicare being able to negotiate prescription drug prices. It's the largest buyer. It's kind of weird that they can't negotiate prescription drug prices right now. It's like a totally inflated market just propped up by the private sector. Um, So we've got to unlock that. In fact, my opponent voted against Medicare being able to negotiate prescription drug prices because he wants to keep uh, prices high because he gets a lot of donations from the pharmaceutical industry. So those are some of the things I support. I think it's also important noting, you know, we've also got to make investments to unlock human health and reduce the costs of care. So, you know, there's some really cutting edge technologies that I think you can have a great partnership between the NIH and the private sector around things like genomics and telehealth and other initiatives that will really fundamentally help all of us, both in health and in costs.
2: That's awesome. Well, I, we've certainly seen an increase in telehealth. I know for us personally, all of our appointments have been telehealth, and I most of my family members as well. So, me too. Shown. Which
0: bring, brings up the importance of infrastructure, broadband connectivity. You know, we're we are a little bit behind, I think, in upgrading our infrastructure, whether it's you know, the roads and the traffic we sit in in Placer County or the broadband connectivity. But our economy and sort of the way we learn, the way we get health care, the way we communicate with each other has fundamentally changed. And we got to make sure everyone can participate in that with broadband access.
2: Absolutely. That's a great point. I mean, I've never thought about that.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, plus, um, you know, I know that it's not, it's not necessarily um, top of mind broadband connectivity for uh, those of us who live in Roseville, but I'll tell you across other parts of our district, we have uh, what we call internet deserts, where a lot of people have no broadband access in the more rural parts of the district. And, you know, this pandemic has Hugely exposed the inequalities tied to connectivity.
2: Oh, yeah! I mean, if without internet access, you really are on the sidelines, especially during a pandemic. Exactly. <laughs> so I think I, I think you can probably tell that
1: we are, aren't typically a political podcast. We talk about mom things, we talk about Real Housewives, but ever since um, some of these bigger issues have come to light and the current administration has been so awful. Um, We have felt the need to use our voice, use our platform, but we often hear amongst our peers, suburban mothers with young children, that politics isn't something that we should be concerned about. Politics can be nasty, divisive and intimidating, especially right now. Why do you think it's important for women and mothers to stay up to date on the political landscape?
0: Well, first of all, it is nasty and divisive, and it is easier to, you know, turn on Netflix and get a glass of rosé and, you know, cuddle up with your spouse or your kids and forget about all of this. And I think that, you know, a lot of people feel that way. Um, And, you know, I think the way that I look at this is apathy is our greatest enemy as a country. Um, when I was a business person, everyone wanted to, you know, talk to me. It's like, everyone's interested in you running a business. When I started running for Congress, you know, I kid you not, no one wanted to talk to me. I mean, even some of my own friends were like, politics is gross. Like, we don't want to hear about it. Why would you ever want to do that? And, you know, the thing that's really interesting about that is I always challenge people like, why do you hold your boss to a higher standard than your representative you why do you accept performances on tv on you know whatever tv news station about politics you listen to and you would never accept it if you turned on you know bloomberg looking at a business person or you would never accept it from your family member or our mayor in roseville like why do we just sit back and say this is messed up the faith in our government has been completely lost. I mean, Congress has a 25% approval rating. It is the least approved organization on the planet. Um, And I don't know who those 25% of people are. So the thing is, it's understandable when people feel like the government doesn't work with them, doesn't connect to them, that they get angry. And that they get disenfranchised. And this is not anger versus a Republican or a Democrat or this or that. It's just anger versus the system. And I mean, I have it too, right? That's why I'm running. That's why I'm running as a business person. But what the problem is that what that does is it opens the door for a demagogue to walk in. You know, from either side, an extremist from either side. And it opens the door for these people that have really, really radical views on both sides to weaponize the dialogue and to weaponize the debate. And it almost ends up with this like really negative flywheel where then less and less people want to participate. We get more and more and more polarized. More people get frustrated again. They don't want to participate, et cetera. And so, you know, I think I start there because it's really important to recognize what's going on. This is an intentional strategy for extremists, right? You disenfranchise people, you delegitimize institutions, you tell people that all they need to do is listen to you. This is like Tom McClintock 101. And so it's important to recognize that and participate because everyone hates polarization, Everyone hates the nastiness. The very thing that turns people off is the very thing that we have to stand up against to make sure that our children and our children's children have a country that is peaceful, have a country that is unified, have a community where they can walk down the street and talk to their neighbor, or you can be in the school parking lot and be talking to someone who may have a different view than you do. None of us want to live in a place where people are fighting with each other, only talking to people who have the same view that they do, where our kids are, you know, not having problems solved for their future, whether it's climate or better infrastructure or good jobs or healthcare, because we've turned over our country to extremists on both sides. So I would articulate it like that to people. You know, if you're fed up, what's your plan? Because it's up to us to
2: change it. So right now, um, especially in the last election, the last congressional election, we've seen a sort of reckoning of women in politics nationally and on the local level too. So what do you think that says about where our country state district is right now?
0: Awesome. (laughs) Um, Well, but more seriously, I think um, it's really, really, really inspiring. I mean, I think that a lot of women have felt for many, many decades and many, many years. And by the way, this is not unique to women. A lot of groups that are different than the traditional sort of long term male politician have felt not um, a part of our government for a long time. You know, I think there was a time where it was very, very rare as a woman to run for office. There were very few women in government. There's still, um, too few, by the way, but, um, and I think a lot of women felt like, you know, that's not really for me or there's not a path for me. And then I think a lot of women recognized what happens when we don't have a seat at the table. You know, you get policies that only support particular demographics, you don't get dialogues about, Being a mom or about education or about um, support for your family in the same way if you're only talking to half of the population. So I think that that is a really, really important part of it. But I think it also goes down to this feeling that so many people have that our government doesn't work for them. I mean, it is not unique to women. I hear it from business owners, I hear it from farmers, I hear it from, you know, construction workers, I hear from men, from women, from Democrats, Republicans, but, you know, everyone really is like, I feel like it's so detached from me, from my issues, from my family, from waking up every day, working hard, getting a fair salary, putting food on the table, getting my kids educated well, to sports, being able to see a retirement in my future. Um, And our government has failed at standing up. For the people that wake up every day and play by the rules and work hard, men and women working families. And I think you see that in this sort of new generation of people running for office, people like me that bring experience in the private sector. People that say, "Okay, we can't accept this extremism on both sides. We can't accept these career politicians. We can't accept that corporate PACs are going to and special interests are going to fund our politics. We have to be different. We have to change this." And so, I'm very excited that I think we're at this turning point where we can turn a page to a new era of unity, of pragmatism, of dialogue with everyone, man or woman. But I think that sort of embedded in that is this belief that as we do turn a page to a new era, we have to have a government that looks like the people that we're representing.
2: I love that. So how do, you, how do we keep this momentum going? I I mean, we have this group of people that we see on one hand are so interested becoming awakened almost to politics and want to get involved, but then we have this other half of people that think we should still not talk about, you know, religion, sex and politics. So, I, how do we like keep this going if we're so, I guess this is just another way we're so divided? I think the question is not if it's how you talk
0: about it. So, you know, I think the reason that a lot of people say that you shouldn't talk about politics with family or friends or around the dinner table or whatever is because when many people talk about politics or many people feel that when others talk about politics it can be a lecture or it can be a fight or it can be my way or the highway and you know you can see how people feel like that like just like you said when you email Tom McClintock it is my way or the highway you know he's uninterested in having a constructive respectful debate about the way to solve an issue and that is again not unique to him it's in both parties it's career politicians it's A lot of people involved in the system as it was. But the the thing is that the way that we need to talk to each other is about community. You know, it's not about political parties. Who cares? No one wants to talk about political parties. It's like this fake thing that sits way out there that is this, you know, platform and institution that pushes people into a box that is completely irrelevant. Like most humans are complicated and have views and have contradictions and you know, really are pretty similar in the middle in a lot of policy ways. But I think if we talk about community, so, you know, what I always tell people is when we have a wildfire, our community comes together. People stand up, they support each other. They donate to evacuation centers. They take their Saturday to help other people. You know, when the virus first hit, there was this incredible outpouring of community. People bought groceries for seniors, people, you know, checked in on their neighbors this is the spirit. This is what politics is all about. Politics is community. That's why it's representation. It's being a member of your community. It's bringing people together to move your community forward. And it's just people have forgotten that because we've had, you know, decades of people like Tom McClintock, who not only don't show up when the community needs them, but when, if, and when they ever do, all they do is talk about their own political party and beliefs not and divide instead of unite. And in his case, because our community, I think, is, is really, really sort of jaded because of this. In his case, he doesn't even live here. So he doesn't even show up. <laughs> so he's like putting stuff on Twitter to divide us. So, you know, this is like a really, really important part of this is, you know, we bring change to our government with community spirit first. Change happens together. And then. It- happens in conversations at dinner tables and coffee shops and at bars and in bookshops and in school parking lots about supporting each other and supporting our community. I
1: love that. I didn't know who um, live in the district. This is news to me. Like- I'm even more mad
0: now. <laughs> It is like horrifying he has never lived in our district he lives in um, about 50 miles away he votes for Ami Bera or whoever runs against Ami Bera he can't even vote for himself uh, he used to represent the Los Angeles area which is a seven hour drive away for 20 years in the state legislature he was born and grew up in a rich Manhattan suburb, White Plains. I mean, it is like something out of a movie.
2: And yet, to your point, like a lot of people don't even know this. No, because <laughs> well, I love <will> everybody. <laughs> I would assume that to run for office, you have to live in that district. But I guess... Yeah,
1: you I, would think so, but I, it's, I, actually,
0: think that. I, it's actually oh, one well, of oh, the well. many...
2: Laws in our system. <laughs> oh my God. I, mean, I feel like, if anything, the last four years have shown us that there are so many loopholes and just like things that you don't think you need to say that we need to get on the books to make sure that this doesn't happen again. It's just, it's crazy. <sighs> So to that end, the fourth district covers such
1: a wide range of California. You have the suburbs of Placer County where we are, but also more rural. rural God, I hate that word. Rural <laughs> areas like Yosemite and Lake Tahoe. Uh, it feels like more now, more now than ever. We're fe- really feeling a partisan divide, not only in California but nationally. How do you represent such a diverse district? What unites us, both within the district and nationally?
0: You know, again, I think it goes back to that spirit of community. You know, the the things I mentioned about standing together for a wildfire, to support one another, helping people, your neighbors and friends amid COVID. I mean, this is not unique to Roseville. It is up and down uh, our 10 counties in our district is this spirit of local community, local government. And, And, you know, I think in many ways that kind of comes from our history in the gold rush, I mean, we've always been an area where there was this enterprising spirit. I mean, people came here um, in many instances to look for gold or to be a part of that economy or to build a railroad. And that was far away, right, from the government in Washington. And people had to come together as communities to support each other throughout history they have. And I think that that spirit is still really prevalent um, and really beautiful all across our district. As you mentioned, our district is super, super diverse and large. Um, We have fast-growing suburbs like Roseville and Rockland. We have um, small rural gold rush towns like Sonora and Mariposa and Angels Camp. We have a lot of forests. We have a lot of farms. We actually have 40% of California's water, a $5 billion ski economy, 15 million people a year who come here as tourists. $1.2 billion spent in sort of outdoor recreation activities. So it's like this super, super vibrant, diverse place, but it is that spirit of community, whether you're in um, Placerville or Auburn or Roseville or um, Jackson that everyone shares. And so, you know, when we kind of bring this back to politics in the election, I always tell people like, let's bottle that up. You know, Why do we only care about community locally? You know, we should have a representative that cares about community and can work with all of us and and be present and who has chosen to make her life in our community like so many other people do because I love the lifestyle and love the, the spirit. So that, um, that is, I think, very, very important about how we're all bonded together and also how we come together to make change.
2: So you mentioned the wildfires and how that always brings us together. That, um, the last couple years, I mean, that's always been on the forefront of our minds in California, but specifically the last couple years, we've seen this increase in huge, like mega fires almost. How does that affect our district and what do you plan to, how do you plan to address that? Because I know that's something that's on our minds every time it's, anytime the wind blows now in the, in the late summer, I, I just get so worried. <laughs> we both yeah. went to college in Chico,
1: so the Paradise Fire was really close to home for us.
0: Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. I
0: mean, it's, uh, right,
1: it's so
0: sad right now and what yeah. California and so many people in our district are going through. I was actually, on Saturday, we did a donation drive actually at my office in Roseville and just had this outpouring of generosity from folks in Placer and El Dorado counties. And then we brought the supplies down to Sonora, to the evacuation fire uh, center for one of the fires, the Moccasin Fire, which is in Grove, London, Colterville area, which is in our district. Um, So, you know, we are a district that has a huge amount of fire risk. uh, And I think a lot of people over the last week have seen uh, some really smoky air as a result of nearby fires as well. So, you know, it's our, our, one of the big challenges, there's a couple reasons for this and and things we need to do, but one of them is forest management. Um, Our forests are really, really overgrowing and we are at the point where, you know, we can have one single ignition point for a fire and it just like spreads. Whereas previously when we had healthier forests, you could have multiple ignition points and there'd just be small little fires that wouldn't grow into such big fires. So we have a real, real imperative to manage our forests more proactively to health so that we can stay safe as residents of our area. And the interesting thing about this is that about 80% of the land, the forest land is federal. So, uh, you know, that obviously means that you need federal funding for our forest service and for our local fire suppression um, and mitigation activities. And just to be clear, like there's a lot of people locally that know how to do this. You know, we are county supervisors, our uh, our forest service workers, some companies in the private sector. and um, But what we lack is a representative that's working collaboratively with those local organizations and advocating for funding to come back to our area if you listen to Tom, it's like he's running for governor. He talks all about failed California policy, which I mean, honestly, if it's federal land, it has like genuinely nothing to do with it. And he just uses the opportunity to point a finger incorrectly at the state government rather than actually say, okay, this is a problem that's on my back. I've been in government for 12 years, federal government, sitting on the Natural Resources Committee, representing an area that is 80% federal land, where fire risk is growing, where forests are overgrown. And every county supervisor and fire chief is begging for help so that they and the Forest Service can do their job. So, you know, the the most fundamental thing that I'm gonna change is collaborate with our local leaders and fight like heck in Washington to get funding allocated for forest management on federal land. It's
2: worth Love also- that because we have um I'm so incredibly thankful that my family's never been evacuated where we are in Roseville. I feel like we're pretty safe, but we still do feel the effects of these fires. Every, I mean, this is just a common thing now that, you know, the air is too unhealthy and we're stuck inside. And so many of my friends and neighbors have especially felt the pinch this past week because, you know, we're we're doing distance learning. We are already not leaving the house very much. And now we're stuck inside. And so to sit and say politics doesn't affect you, I mean, there's a perfect example of how it affects your daily life.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the other thing is pg and E. I I mean, I know in Roseville, we have Roseville Electric, so we haven't been uh, affected by the power shutoffs, but I'll tell you hundreds of thousands of people in our district have. Um, and I, I have visited and talked with folks at emergency relief centers and it's uh, not a good situation. And the problem with pg and which highlights the problem with career politicians, is that they have contributed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions actually, to political candidates of both parties over the last few years, Tom being one of them. And so you know, when we have this conversation of pg and infrastructure is out of date, which it is, e hasn't invested in their infrastructure instead they've been paying politicians and paying bonuses PG e needs to be held accountable it's like of course they're not going to be held accountable by the guy who's taking all of his campaign funding from them and like this is true of a lot of people at the state level too but like the notion that you could stand up against one of your big big donors and say I need to regulate and hold you accountable for the population is completely ludicrous. Like I've run a company where I wanted to go against major shareholders and you can't, it's really, really, really difficult. They're like, we're gonna get rid of you or you're gonna do what we want. And so that is also a really fundamental problem and why we need change. You know, We can't have politicians that take money from people like PG&E when we're trying to keep our community safe.
1: Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) We need to have an uplifting one. I'll tell you my favorite Netflix shows. All right. Well, switching gears a little bit, what is your advice for a woman that may want to get involved in politics but feels intimidated by the process?
0: Well, I would, um, first of all, encourage her to speak to people that have or are going through the process and seek out some of the training programs and support networks that exist. I actually, um, when I was thinking about running and didn't really know what I wanted to do and didn't really know what a campaign was or anything, I actually did um, a program called Emerge, which is a Mm -hmm. national organization that trains women running for office. Um, It's been around for many years. Um, You know, many quite prominent people like Senator Harris have gone through the program And it um, is a really, really good foundation and also is a really good kind of support network of other women. You know, there are other women who are running for Congress this year who I met in my Emerge training class Mm -hmm. who I still talk to and have become close friends. So I think that kind of community and mentorship is really, really important so that you you can demystify it a little bit and have a support network. I'm a really big believer in Seeking out mentors and those who have forged the ground before you and being a part of those networks um, because I think it it just it kind of it gives you that support group that's so, so important in, in
2: um in
0: through the process.
2: I love that. We're big believers in community too. You are only as good as the people all around you. So I love that. Um, So another part of our news cycle that just seems to be on repeat for the last couple years is racial justice, social justice, and the disproportionate treatment of Black citizens in our country. So if you are elected, how do you plan to fight for racial equality? What policies do you think need the most attention to fight for Black, Indigenous, and people of color?
0: Well, it is very encouraging that we are having a much needed national dialogue about uh, 150 years of racial injustice. Um, One of the things that I've learned over the last few months, which is a statistic, but I just can't get it out of my mind is that in our country, black families are in 60% of what white families do and have 10% of the wealth of what a white family does on average. And that was exactly the same in 1968, when Lyndon Johnson passed civil rights legislation. So, you know, if you just boil it down to that one statistic, it does very, very much highlight um, what I believe is an a, opportunity divide. Um, we need to make sure that uh, folks, regardless of what they look like, have access to a high quality education, have access to Uh, affordable health care, have access to affordable housing. And once they go through education, have access to a job, a paying job where they're paid fairly. You know, a lot of these sort of things are stacked against communities of color in through that whole journey. And, you know, I'm a big believer that the role of government is to create that equality of opportunity. You know, equality of outcome is a different thing. I do believe that, It is up to the individual to take that opportunity and to work hard and to run with it with individual responsibility. But if people don't start the race from the same place, you can't expect them to have an equal shot of winning the race. So when I think about um, what we do about this, I think it, it starts at the beginning of life. It starts with education and our education funding formulas are so tied to housing prices and, you know, just it's a very sort of um, difficult thing to unwind, but that's where I would start from a policy perspective is looking at how do we make sure that every child has access to the same quality education so that they get that foundation to succeed in our country. And you know, then there's all the other things, the equal access to broadband, having an opportunity for affordable health care, making sure we have equal pay legislation once people get into the workplace, uh, something, by the way, that my opponent voted against, voted against equal pay legislation. Um, and so that's really where I, I start this.
2: Yeah, there's lots of work to be done. So the education is as good a place to start as any. <laughs> <laughs> let's end on a more lighthearted note um we are big tv junkies we always make time for our favorite shows
0: yeah, everyone is right now I, I talked to so many people We're like I've
1: basically streamed everything already my Netflix ran out
2: <laughs> so what is your favorite show that you've binged recently or what what do you always make time to watch
0: um, well, I like a lot of people been through a lot. Um, I'm a big fan of Shits Creek, which just makes me laugh. I've watched it multiple times all the way through. Um, right now I am watching Yellowstone.
1: Oh, oh, I've heard about this.
0: It's good. It's really good. I need to add that to my list. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. It's, um,
2: yeah, it's really good. Oh, I love that. Moira Rose always goes down smooth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you so, so much for taking time to talk with us. And we just, we value everything you have to say. And I have my sign out in the yard and I just, I can't oh, wait thank to thank you. you. <laughs>
0: well, thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for all your um, incredible work building up this podcast. I know it's so important for so many moms to stay connected with each other. I know it's even more important during this pandemic. So you guys are really providing a forum for all of us to connect with each other. And I know a lot of people really appreciate that. So it's my honor to join you all today.
2: Thank you. If you like what you just heard, and we hope you do, you can find more of us online at www.okistmoms.com. We're also on all social media platforms, Pinterest, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at blog. Or if you want to, you can send us an email at hey at okistmoms.com.